the investor journey from day one that you meet me over LinkedIn or over email, over a podcast, and what that looks like over the entire arc of our relationship together matters almost as much as the deal itself. Welcome to the Authentically Successful Show. I'm Carol Schultz, founder and CEO of Vertical Elevation, a talent equity and leadership coaching and advisory firm. We partner with founders and CEOs to create talent-centric organizations, either where they don't currently exist or rebuild companies into talent-centric organizations. We are committed to supporting your vision and values by creating healthy, successful companies, leveraging the best talent, retention, development, and succession strategies. Listen at the end of the show for information about becoming my next guest on one of the most important podcasts for building thriving companies. Here we go. My guest today is Brian Adams, founder and president of Excelsior Capital, a real estate private equity firm primarily focused on stabilized income and capital preservation. Excelsior's strategy targets high-quality, stable, multi-tenant office assets in emerging secondary markets with a strong history of occupancy. To capitalize on this strategy, they focus on assets in the 10 to $25 million range, where they are often overlooked by institutional investors. Brian began his career as an attorney and moved into real estate investing in 2010. He's been on the investment committee of Solidus LP, an early stage venture capital firm focused on healthcare and technology, and he's also sat on a number of boards. Brian, welcome. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure to have you. So tell me a little bit more about Excelsior. I mean, anything else that you can fill in the blanks on over, you know, beyond what I've you know, talked about a little bit here? Sure. Um, not, <laughs> we can start anywhere you want. It was really maybe more towards your audience or your focus professionally was really something that came out of, um, the first iteration of the business that I started 10 years ago originally. Right. And as a young entrepreneur, we grew really quickly. This is what I would refer to as our legacy portfolio. Mm-hmm. And along with that, we made a lot of mistakes. And we grew really fast, probably too fast, frankly. Mm-hmm. And um, there were some issues there. Mm-hmm. And we can go into some of those mm-hmm. kind of mistakes that I experienced and lessons learned, but Excelsior was really my effort to not only not repeat those mistakes, but to do it the right way, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, after going through some growing pains and some fairly difficult periods, um, call it five or six years ago. Mm -hmm. And the company that you're talking about is Preamp Properties? Correct. Okay. So let's, since you brought it up, let's talk about some of the mistakes you made and why you think you made those mistakes. Yeah. And I I think for, you know, aspiring entrepreneurs, people in the real estate business or not, it doesn't do a whole lot of good, in my opinion, for me to come on here and talk about how great I am and Mm -hmm. and the successes. You can learn a lot more from the failures and the mistakes. So say that all the time. uh, And we continue to make mistakes, right? Don't get me wrong. We, mm-hmm. We're kind of iterative. But a big one um, that I experience that I see a lot in the market and when I talk to other aspiring entrepreneurs or people who want to be in the real estate business in particular is that people tend to fall into a trap of being in deal people, right? Making acquisitions, making deals happen without realizing that you are also a small business owner. And a small businesses in America tend to fail. It's about an 85% failure rate within the first 12 months. Mm -hmm. So there's all these things that you now are responsible for, um, like HR, marketing, sales, technology, Mm -hmm. audit, tax, bookkeeping, et cetera. And I don't care what your product is, what widget is that you're pitching and selling. You now have to deal with these other ancillary components of the business and if you don't take that seriously, you'll never be able to scale efficiently. Right. And so you may be able to have a run where you can do a good job of that kind of the core business of selling the widget, but you'll never be able to have a true business that can grow with you. Mm-hmm. So what was going on inside your head as a practicing attorney that had you say, I can go do something different? 
Lack of awareness. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks for your honesty. That's I was sort of hoping that's what you were going to say something like that. The ego right. of a well-educated. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> the, the ego of a well-educated white guy who married well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's. I mean, it's. It's. You know. Thanks for for having enough integrity to actually say that. Right. Sure. Sure. Well, I mean, if you think about it, and and I say that in all honesty, but yeah. with a little bit of a, with a little bit of jest, right? But the reality is, given my station in life, mm-hmm. and I talked to somebody about this over coffee yesterday, a young aspiring entrepreneur who wants to be in real estate, comes from the same, let's just use zip code as a, as a tentpole for, for, you know, affluent background. What is your downside here? Yeah. Like some of these deals don't work out people who already have a lot of capital maybe lose some of that money but you're not going to be living on the streets right you'll be okay you have resources you have cushion and in our family we think well then that should allow you to be either of service in the community or be an entrepreneur mm-hmm. and so you know I, I was of service for a number of years right. uh, working in Nashville. And then I thought, well, now is an effort or a time or a window where I could be an entrepreneur and try to do something Mm -hmm. because I had that, I had that cushion to fall back on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not everybody does, obviously. Well, right. Of course. So do you think you would not have made the leap had that not been the case? It's such a hard question to answer. I know. It's Monday morning Um, quarterbacking, but yeah. (laughs) Well, I can tell you that I wouldn't make that choice where I am today. I mean, I'm 39 Mm -hmm. with two kids and a house and a wife and (laughs) pretty extensive overhead. Mm -hmm. And it would, I don't think I've got that risk appetite today Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, like I did when I was 28. Right. Um, So, so when, when starting, when starting the other business, Brian, you know, you said you made made a lot of mistakes. You know, HR, sales, you know, all those things. Did it just not occur to you that you should bring in third parties to help you in areas that you were not expert? And did you subsequently do that? In fact, I mean, how did you how did you learn? How did you go past those mistakes? It it did not occur to me. It's kind of like how Hemingway talks about going bankrupt. How it takes place so slowly and then happens all at once. <laughs> it was kind of this grind that I knew the system was kind of not operating optimally right? and that we needed to put resources to work in certain areas. And then it just came to a head mm-hmm. really quickly. Mm-hmm. And so then we had to kind of press pause and go back and fix everything. Right. And unfortunately it wasn't even the deals, right? The deals were actually okay, but it was my marketing, my reporting, my investor relations, my tech, all these things that it got put on the back burner that one day we were going to address. Well, that day came. <laughs> and so I spent about a year getting my teeth kicked in mm. by my third parties, by my investors, by a mm-hmm. bunch of people. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, frankly, and when you talk to venture capital investors and they, they say things like, Oh, I really like to invest with entrepreneurs that have failed in the past. Mm-hmm. And you may not necessarily get it, mm-hmm. but now I totally get it because right. now as a manager, even though, I mean, I look old cause it's, I've been being down by life, but I'm 39, <laughs> you know, I've still got some time. I take a lot of these things really, really seriously. And members of my team don't fully appreciate why I'm so particular about certain aspects of the company. Mm-hmm. And to, to your question, yes, we, we, we have really tried very hard to obviously not even not make those mistakes again, but to go above and beyond what would be industry standard mm-hmm. or market in a lot of those areas. And we're really proud of the work, but I don't think I'd be the manager I am today unless I had that experience that I had six, mm-hmm. seven years ago. So, you know, what I'm, what I'm hearing you say is that, and this is very common, I talk a lot about this, is that all these things were living in a blind spot for you, right? You don't know what you don't know. You don't know what you don't know, and you unless you actively go out and try to recruit mentors and peers. That's right. And you take that part of the professional development seriously. You'll mm-hmm. you'll never know. That's right. And have you done that? Yeah, I've tried really hard. I joined YPO. Yep. Um, I take my networking really seriously. I'm mm-hmm. constantly talking to other, and I'm sorry for the jargon, but 
GPs, sponsors, fund managers, real estate professionals to understand mm-hmm. what are, what is in your opinion best in best in class operations for XYZ part of the business. Mm-hmm. What is cutting edge? What have you tried? What is working? What is not working? I spend a lot of time on that. And I think one of my mentors put it really well by saying, you know, we were given two ears and one mouth for a reason. Oh yeah. I and I, I actually try to listen to my investors and what they mm-hmm. want mm-hmm. as opposed to me just hard pitching them all the time, right. telling them what's going to happen. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, the two ears and one mouth, I, I mean, I, I can't tell you, I've been saying that for 30 years and that's really the truth. You should listen twice as much as you speak. That's how you learn. Right. You know, we, none yeah. of us knows everything. You know, I mean, I'm, even, even after having been in my business for 30 years, I'm still learning. And that's where it's interesting, and I'd be curious to hear your uh, thoughts on this because mm-hmm. you speak to a lot of entrepreneurs mm-hmm. or people in the space. Right. It's almost like you need, and your question before was a really good one. Would you do that? Would you make that same choice again mm-hmm. if you didn't have the cushion? Yeah. You almost need this naivete and the sense of instructability to to start a business to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. But then that that positive, yeah. that strength can also become your biggest weakness. That's right. As you That's grow. A great point, in fact. You know, when I when I started in this in my business in 1992, um, the people I was working for, you know, would say, you know, let's just throw Carol a steak, you know, raw raw steak. She'll just do whatever is necessary. And people that don't know it any better are really great about doing that. The more you learn, then you're like, yeah, I don't think I want to do that. <laughs> right, the mm. more you know. But I guess underlying what I'm hearing, I- I'm wondering, did it ever dawn on you? And it has it since, um, because you- you've surrounded yourself, Brian, by, you know, as you say, you know, you're in YPO, you know, you've got advisors, people in the real estate market, you know, other you know, venture capitalists, PE people, people that know the business. But have you considered or have you hired somebody to actually be your executive coach to look at you from a different standpoint, like who you be. Yeah. So I engaged a, a personal brand consultant, which I know is not the same as an Correct. executive coach. Right. So I, I'm kind of at the end of that journey. Um, I did that for about a year and mm-hmm. YPO has a, as a, an executive coach partnership. I think they're called global CEOs or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've considered it, my fear is I'm not sure I'm quite there yet. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs think that like, well, I'm not, I'm not ready for that next step, mm-hmm. but that was my, you know, I did the intake. I did the assessment. I mm-hmm. heard the pitch. Mm-hmm. I'm just don't know if I'm, I don't know if I have the time or the bandwidth to take it seriously enough for that mm-hmm. coach. Cause the last thing I want to do is waste somebody's mm-hmm. time. Right. And I'm sure you hear this pushback from a lot of entrepreneurs, but yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, and I don't want to get too distracted from, from, you know, the conversation that we are having, but I, I will say, uh, I do hear that a lot. And one of the more common things that you just said, you know, I don't know if I have the time or the bandwidth. When we say we don't have time, often what that is, is it's uh, just an excuse. Either we're not managing our time effectively enough, or we haven't seen the value in doing whatever that is. Right. Because you and I both know if there was something you really wanted to do that you were really committed to, you would make the time for it. Right. And I think it's shorthand for this is just not a priority for me. Right. Which is the pushback that I gave. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and and thanks for actually, again, being straight about that, that that's really what's up for you there. Oh, I told you I'd be wide open in this conversation and I, <laughs> I will promise to be. Yeah. And I really and, appreciate that. So why, so I'm curious as to why you founded a new company rather than making the pivots that you know now with the former company. It was more of a structural issue. Mm-hmm. Um, we recapitalized that entire portfolio with an institutional group that wanted to keep the intellectual property associated mm-hmm. with it. Got it. And they didn't want me in the marketplace confusing brokers and sellers and other third parties okay. that there were two preems and it's just too hard to get into. Got it. So we rebranded and I took some team members with me and we started our new Excelsior. platform. Yeah, got it. Yeah, three, four years ago. Right, right. So you're obviously privately held. How large is your fund? Where's your money coming from? 
gosh. Um, today we manage in Excelsior about $150 million of real estate. Okay. Prium is probably a $300 million portfolio. Mm-hmm. So all in, it's about $450 million. That's awesome. Um, mm-hmm. Our capital is exclusively from high net worth individuals and family offices mm-hmm. and independent RIAs or boutique wealth management firms. We don't have any institutional capital, nor do we want any institutional capital. That was another mistake I made. The first mm-hmm. go around was working with some of these folks who would sell their grandmother for a shekel and rip her face off. Yeah, Just don't really need to work with them and don't necessarily want to. So, Do you think that that what you're saying about institutional capital at least from a real estate standpoint, is something that's common in the real estate area. Because, of course, you know, I, I talk to so many founders who've taken institutional capital in the tech sector and have not had those kind of, I've not heard that kind of feedback. So that's what I'm kind of curious about. I mean, sometimes I hear it, of course, but not a lot. Sure. I think there is a difference just in mindset of yeah. real estate is an old line industry mm-hmm. and there are very sharp elbows there. And there's a dynamic within the real estate space. And I, and I caution entrepreneurs in the real estate space about this exact issue. A lot of people in my position would aspire to institutional capital. Yeah, They would want to work with a large private equity group and have a programmatic JV arrangement or raise a big fund. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that those groups have every incentive to, to, to kneecap you to make sure that you never are a competition for them, right? <laughs> That's how the ecosystem is set up. Mm. Because the last thing they want is for a talented manager to go out and call on their equity, their limited yeah. partners, their institutional right. LPs, mm. because that's taking money out of their pocket. Yeah. So they, they, they write some pretty big checks and it's, it's exciting if Blackstone or Carlisle gives you some money, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, the control rights and the, the legal controls that they have on you in economics are such that they've really painted you into a corner. Mm-hmm. And I looked at the world and, and we thought about this really long before we launched Excelsior. We, we thought, okay, not only look, let's look back and look at the mistakes, but also Let's think about the world in terms of what we want to do. And we could name the top 200 private equity groups or the the typical institutional limited partner investors. Like Mm -hmm. there's a list and there's not many new ones coming online, right? There aren't new pension plans being made. There aren't new endowments being made. On the flip side, if you look at the quote unquote retail channel, Mm -hmm. right? Individuals and families, Mm -hmm. There are 13.3 accredited investor households in America. Less than 3% have exposure to alternatives or private equity today. Mm-hmm. And that number is going up. And it has been going up pretty dramatically. And I think the accredited investor status is being diluted and will continue to be. So there's a lot of open space there, people not being served. And then we thought, okay what's the most painful price point to focus on in terms of a fundraise where nobody wants to be? It's that three to $4 million equity raise above mm-hmm. the friends and family, but below the institutional folks, right. nobody wants to be there. So that's where we are. That's where we spend all of our time. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, because nobody wants to be in the capital raising business. Nobody wants to serve <laughs> the high net worth individual groups like the way we do. And nobody wants to raise this amount of capital. So those deals are inefficient from a market standpoint. And we just embrace that that pain, and it's worked. That's interesting. So you, you talk, uh, you know, your business, as you say, you, you're, you're really focusing on emerging secondary markets. Can you tell me a little bit more about what that means? Yeah, I mean, it's just a made-up Wall Street jargon term for, <laughs> well, thank you. Not yeah. big, for not big cities. Like, I don't really know. It's a squishy oh. definition because... <laughs> They want to be able to go where they want to go. So we're not talking, you know, New York, Chicago, you know, the Bay Area. Yeah, if you take the top 10 big gateway markets, yeah, New York, LA, you know, San Francisco, Boston, whatever. Chicago, yeah, right. Miami, Mm -hmm. we are in markets that are not there. Okay, so that's what that means. Thank you. Yeah. But we're also above, like, we're not going to go to Topeka. (laughs) 
So we're not in the in the, the small small places. So we're in the mm-hmm. in between, right? The call it hundred to fifty MSAs or or cities. So the last couple of places that we've transacted have been Chattanooga, El Paso, West Palm Beach, Orlando, mm-hmm. Dallas suburbs, uh, right. Minneapolis, those type of places. Got it. Okay. You know, again, not unknown cities, certainly, but not not the right. you know the Big Ten. Right. So I, you know, I personally am um, per, like I'm perpetually spammed. <laughs> both on LinkedIn and email from people who are trying to get me to invest in commercial real estate, <laughs> mm-hmm. which I would never do with somebody I didn't know. I, mean, I wouldn't invest any money with anybody I didn't know. What What is up with that <laughs> exactly? <laughs> why? I mean, I, I hope you're not doing that. And, and why, are, why are these companies doing that? Yeah. So we don't do, know. do that. Yeah, we have a we have a pretty robust distribution list uh-huh. um, of folks that kind of want to see our opportunities, but we don't believe in spamming. We don't believe in cold email. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't believe in the cold LinkedIn notes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it's laziness yeah. uh-huh. on the part of most of these sponsors, and the law of big numbers to some extent mm-hmm. does apply. Direct mail, I think, right? One percent, yeah. Yep. It, but also I think it's more endemic within the real estate business is that these sponsor operator managers don't take the sales and marketing function as seriously as they should. And it's a real problem. They, they just want to make acquisitions. They just want to do deals, but they don't think about the investor experience. Right. And, and that was something I learned the first time around the investor journey from day one that you meet me over LinkedIn or over email, over a podcast Mm -hmm. and what that looks like over the entire arc of our relationship together matters almost as much as the deal itself. Bravo. Yeah. That's, that's the, that's the customer centric organization, by the way. Yeah. I mean, I mean, your investors are your customers really. Right. Right. And, (laughs) and I know my, and my metrics and my KPIs and data prove this out. Mm -hmm. If you invest with me, you're very likely to reinvest with me. Right. And if your experience is a positive one, of you're course. very likely to make a warm introduction. That's right. And I'm much more likely to convert a warm introduction than I am spamming mm-hmm. you on LinkedIn. Yeah. It takes more work. Mm-hmm. It takes more time. Mm-hmm. It takes more effort. And, and that's where, to my conversation before about where we are investor base, who we work with and who we don't. We work really hard on being a thought leader and an industry expert in creating value for the investors beyond just the deals itself to build those relationships Mm -hmm. because we don't need to have a million people, Mm -hmm. right? If we have a good core group of investors, we have a great business. That's right. And so that's how we think about sales and marketing and lead gen or whatever other term Mm -hmm. you want to throw at it. But, Mm -hmm. But fundamentally, that's how we've built the infrastructure of our business is to accommodate this certain population set that we know has a problem. Right. And the problem is access to opportunities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and you know, that's, that's the same thing in my business and, and it's really, you know, you hit on it. And, and again, it's interesting because this is really a common denominator, laziness. People are lazy. Right. And, you know, I hate that. It's, it's like, I feel like I'm preaching. I mean, I'm preaching to the choir. It's, it's like my, it's like my soapbox, the spam on email and LinkedIn. I just, you know, makes me crazy. I'm like, who taught you how to sell? This is not how to sell. Selling is all about relationships and building relationships. And guess what? It doesn't happen in a 15 minute conversation. It may take many conversations <laughs> over months. Yeah. And I do a whole presentation about this. I do a presentation about how to raise capital yep. efficiently within the high net worth space. Great. And the, the, my biggest point is you can ground and pound it all day long. And it'll work Like if you want to do the brute thing. Mm-hmm. like You'll get some conversions. Mm-hmm. But if you want to be more efficient with your time and your investor's time, right. If you have an empathetic approach and empathetic pitch and you're bringing a solution set right. to your investor base because you've listened to them about what their problems are, mm-hmm. it's just a smoother deal <laughs> all right. around, I promise you. Well, you know, again, a common denominator is any of us, 
should be in business because we are actually committed to solving a problem that needs to be solved. And and that's where on LinkedIn, you you know, I don't understand <laughs> these titles of these these and and some of them are my friends and I've been on their shows, but <laughs> it's like you know, c- creating financial freedom. Oh, God, I for, know I want to. I'm like, dude, if you're trying to target accredited investors that have an average household income of above $200,000 a year, they don't want financial freedom. They have financial freedom. All right. This is not the right pitch. Because people don't know how to brand themselves. They don't know how to market. They don't know how to do any, especially, especially, you know, solopreneurs, small companies, you know, initial entrepreneurs, they just don't know anything about, you know, how do you find the right marketing person? How do you find the right social media person? How do you, those things take time to learn how to do, which is why when I have fantastic people, I want to scream it from the, the, the rooftops and tell everybody I know, you want social media? Here's a company you should use. You want, you know, you want this, this is who you should use. They're fantastic. Just like people refer you or people refer me, right? It takes time and it also takes money. That's right. You can have a crummy product, and you can shout it into the ocean. Mm-hmm. It's much better to pay up for first class third party vendors and and uh, right. advisors. Mm-hmm. It will make your business a lot better. It may be painful to take that money from your pocket, put it back mm-hmm. into the business. That's right. But if you want a scalable, efficient business, it is the right thing to do 100%. Right. And it's really not that hard. Mm-hmm. But you have to take it seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's no question. That's what I had to do when I pivoted my business. Spend, 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 spend. <laughs> you know, and, and you just have to get over the fact that, you know what, it may be a year and a half before I make any money. Or get and, back to where I to was your, before the pivot. Yeah. <laughs> I, I maybe get to I incur a lot of debt. <laughs> but, you know, that debt will all get paid off. It's, it's you know, it's, you know, it's what smart business people do. But to your question about why you get inundated, mm-hmm. I think it's because people see easy money right now in this yeah. space, and now everybody wants to pitch you apartment deals. Mm. That's why there aren't a lot of people who have been doing this for over 10 years. Right. Well, right. Would you refer to that as a low barrier to entry? Real estate is a, by definition, low barrier to entry business. Right. right. Which makes it great. And also terrible. <laughs> That's well, it's the same thing with my business, right? Very low barrier to entry. And, you know, when you have a low barrier to entry, you have, and I am being generous here, a sea of mediocrity. It's a lot worse than that. Yeah. What's interesting about your business and my business in this conversation mm-hmm. is what I've actually realized is that a lot of people who are portraying themselves as real estate professionals are actually making their money. And it's a really a cross pitch into consulting, coaching, and online courses. Oh, that's so interesting. But they're really? not actually in the real estate business. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, that's another thing I wouldn't, I, and I do, I get I get lambasted by those too. Hi, dude. You know, I, Carol, I'm, I'm a coach for this and that. And I'm like, gosh, I have 23 years experience since when I started my training in coaching. You don't have any mm-hmm. experience. Why would I hire you? <laughs> Just saying. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, that's the problem with any, you know, real estate, of course, is what we're talking about, you know, realtors are a dime a dozen, right? And, you know, 99% of them probably are not anybody I want to work with. I want to, I want to find the top one, one or 2% to work with in, in every industry, right? And when the next cycle occurs, that's right. they'll, they'll go back wash to being that's whatever right. they were doing before. And- that's right. Whenever that is. You and I will have this conversation again in three years. We'll be the only ones around. (laughs) Well, that'll be good. Well, we'll put that on the calendar for a follow-up call to see see if we were correct about that. (laughs) So you are seven employees. Is that correct? So across the whole enterprise, it's 16. 16. And is this like full-time permanent? And when you say that, that's Priam and Excelsior, yeah? Correct. Okay. Got it. So, so... I didn't do didn't do my research on Priam. I primarily because I wasn't I did not realize you were still in that business. Um, but I did on Excelsior and and looking at those seven faces, only one of those faces belongs to a woman. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, at the other company, you know, what do those faces look like? The other company we have 
you know, the other eight, nine people. Yeah. Yeah. Two women and one black male. Okay. And those two women are in what roles? Accounting and asset management. Right. So not, not in your executive roles. So, you know, I don't want to just bust your stones here about why you don't have more diversity in your organization without asking, why don't you have more diversity in your, in your organizations? Because sometimes it's a matter of this is a man's world and what are we doing about changing that or bringing people in that have the right cultural fit, the right drive that we can teach? So I'll push back a little bit okay. and say that my founding partner at Priam and my partner at Excelsior is Indian. Okay. So he's not a white dude. Good. He's a guy. Yes. And you're half, halfway there. <laughs> I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you an unsatisfying answer, which okay. a lot of finance people give you, which is there is a pipeline issue. Yeah. Well, right. When we hired our most recent hire, I needed a staff accountant, mm-hmm. and I talked to my COO, I talked to my partner, mm-hmm. and I said we cannot hire another white SEC bro. Right. We can't do it. <laughs> Good. So the mandate I gave um, the mandate I gave them was find me somebody who's not a white SEC bro. Mm-hmm. It is a very challenging market. I have no doubt. We we probably paid up ten to fifteen percent over market to find somebody who was a female. Okay, and she's terrific. Mm-hmm. That's not sustainable. Right. That's not how capitalism works. Right. There's a cultural issue of women and and minorities in financial services, right. in the workforce. And right now there is a bidding war over them. Yeah, got it. Ugh, Small yeah. businesses, I cannot afford it. Yeah. And I, I know that's a lame excuse, but we sent, we have a third party. We had two headhunters mm-hmm. we engaged for this position. Mm-hmm. They both said, what you want is not possible right now. Okay. Unless you want to pay 50% more. Right. Well, and that's their job to tell you that, right? If they've done the work and if you've hired the right people to do that. And, and, and I'm, not, I'm not here to say that what you just said to me was a lame excuse, Brian, because there are facts. I think what I, I want to ask you is, what can you do and are you willing to, to help the pipeline issue, right? I mean, there's got to be a way. I mean, you know your business a whole lot better than I do, which is not at all. Um there's got to be a way to improve that pipeline. What could be done about that? And are you willing to actually step in and say, you know what, we need to fix this and, and let's start to do that. I mean, I don't know what it looks like, but in practice. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because my children go to a private school here in Nashville. We just went through a head of school search mm-hmm. and the pushback, and it's the most diverse school in Tennessee. <laughs> There's a big caveat wow. there because it's, it's Tennessee. But, right. but well, it's you know, I get that. Yeah, of course. But it's something. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of frustration that two out of the four candidates were white guys. And the third party consulting group, as well as the search committee, came back to the parents and said, listen, less than 3% of the administrators in America are non-white guys. So yeah. I just don't know where to go to find these candidates. Mm-hmm. And we ended up finding somebody who, who, who was a black male mm-hmm. and he's great. Yeah. Good. But there are systemic issues in place. That is, that is, this is an issue. Like, I don't know, I don't know what I can do to solve it other than trying to talk about it in a very transparent manner Mm-hmm. and normalize the concept amongst non-white guys that you can go into financial services, that you can go into private equity, that you can go into venture capital, that you can be a commercial real estate professional mm-hmm. and to encourage people to come through that. Mm-hmm. But it's a challenge. Yeah. You know, it's funny because um, I was actually just thinking about this when I was watching um, this, uh, just finishing up this last season of Billions <laughs> on Showtime. I, I don't know if you, have you ever watched, have you seen it? No. no. Yeah. It's, you know, it's about a, you know, a, a white hedge fund guy. And, and, you know, as I look at the people that are working for him, you know, of course it's primarily white males, right? You know, there's an occasional woman, um, 
you know, there's like one black guy, there's, you know, an Indian, um, but it's, you know, mostly whites and, and, you know, not many females either. And, and that's why I bring it up. I'm, you know, like I said, I'm not here to, to lambast you over that because there is, there is some what's so to it, right? This is just what's so, this is the fact. This is, this is not a story I'm making up around the facts. This is just the facts. The facts are 3%, you know, the 3% that you were talking about are non-white males. They're not non-white, right? For, to, to find a new head of your school for, for, the, for your kids. Those are just the facts. And it is a pipeline issue and you are right. And, you know, that's the choice you have to make. Are you willing to pay more, which you did for this one person, but can you maintain that? And, and I'll take some responsibility personally and from a family perspective. Mm -hmm. And you can read about this in The Atlantic and New Yorker and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. There's some really good data out there. Baby boomers and millennials figured out education, elite education, and elite networking organizations are the path to success financially. Mm -hmm. And we came in and we made sure that the barrier to entry was so high for other people right. to make sure that our kids got every single advantage yeah. possible. There was no room for anybody else. Yeah. And it's not even a private school, public school thing. I mean, if you look at some of these school districts and the median price of the homes are five hundred, six hundred thousand dollars. That's as good as a private tuition tax, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we've done a great job of of ensuring that our kids have unfair advantages mm -hmm. to the detriment of other people. Right. And I don't know, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this. And I've challenged other people. Yeah. Where is the balance between making sure that my kids have every unfair advantage that a parent wanted to give to them, mm -hmm. but also that we have an equitable society? Yeah, you know, that that is the forgetting about inflation, the $64,000 question, right? And I think about this a lot. I think about it as I have um, unfollowed and even unfriended uh, people on Facebook because it's so divisive and people are angry all the time. I did this last year at the beginning of the pandemic. I'm like, I don't need to see this shit. <laughs> really? I was angry all the time. And that was it. I just removed it from my life. I think that part of it is, is, is that people have feelings about things, whether they are correct or not, they have their opinions. And their opinions aren't necessarily the truth or a fact, right? And I think that, you know, so so the school that your kids go to, do they give out scholarships? We have that would be one way uh, to do to do it, right? We have a very robust financial aid program. Okay, that's so tuition covers a roughly eighty-four percent of the overhead of the school. Okay, the rest is made up by the our annual campaign mm -hmm. and this the the slogan we use is if you want the school to continue to be the school that you want to send your kids to those who can give have to give yeah right and when you hear stories about places like amherst where i went to wesleyan which is mm -hmm. you know a big rival of amherst mm -hmm. that they're no longer taking legacy status into account oh, wow. for their for their admissions, I have mixed emotions there. Yeah, no, like right. I'm a legacy at Wesleyan. Mm -hmm. I'm, my wife there, my brother went there. We are very supportive of the school. Sure. I kind of want my kid to have an outside advantage there, but I still want it to be this diverse yeah. place that takes the best people. I don't know how to rectify that in my mind. Well, that's yeah, that's more complicated than the time we have here, but. What I would what I would Part say two. we can come back on yeah right what what I would say about that Brian is that first of all there's no panacea right so you're never going to get it's it's kind of like hiring you're never going to get ten out of ten you make it nine out of ten so you have to start looking at your need your need to haves versus your nice to haves that's how I work through this process and like what are the need to haves. Right. I mean, do you need to have a legacy program at the university? Like, is it really a need to have? Or is it a nice to have? And that's how you start to build backwards on these things. So, 
you know, I remember um, how disappointed my sister was who uh, did her undergraduate work at Stanford and then her master's and PhD at Michigan. We're a big Michigan family. Uh, of, of all my first cousins, there were 10 of us in total. Five of us went to Michigan. Go blue. And she was so disappointed when her daughter, who was a National Merit Scholar, did not get into Stanford. Hmm. She couldn't believe it. Now, this kid's, I think, 32 now. So, you know, this is, what, 15 years ago or something? <laughs> but I remember her saying how disappointed she was. Um, yeah, it, 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 and and it, you know, my niece is not suffering. She's now getting her PhD at UCLA. <laughs> so... I have kind of, and, and I, I'd be interested in your opinion about this. I did not go to Ivy League. I went to the University of Montana undergrad, Michigan graduate. And I, I feel like I've always said that I don't really think where you get your undergraduate degree matters that much. What matters is if you go to graduate school, where you go to graduate school. That's my feeling. I would disagree. Okay. I think I figured you were going to say, but I think it gives you (laughs) the networking. Yeah. It's the networking Mm -hmm. and it's the presumption of status. Mm -hmm. And it's, and let's be totally frank here. The, I bet my wife at a bar in New York city. I met my wife in college. It's a place where you find breeding mates. Yeah. Right. Like it's, it's a, Mm -hmm. it's a, you're paying to make sure that your kid meets other affluent kids. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so it's really about that. It's not about the education then, right? I think the education is fungible. Right. So, you know, to my point, does it really matter where you get your undergraduate education from an education standpoint? Maybe not. But to your other point, I see, I mean, I hear what you're saying. Right. If you want that breeding ground and, and so on and so forth. Because um, we figured it out. Like we yeah. understand yeah. the steps that will lead to success and mm-hmm. that will be pro- like it's such a competitive space. Yeah. And I think part of the dynamic that you're seeing and when you alluded to on Facebook is and we're getting way away from real estate right now, but it's kind of yeah. interesting. <laughs> People who look like me are really scared about how America is changing. That's right. And what that means for their offspring and yeah. their prospects professionally, mm-hmm. because if we don't have this recipe for success any longer, yeah. what does that mean for the systems of power that I've set up over the past couple of generations? Mm-hmm. It's yeah. scary. It, Pace well, of change is yeah. scary. Yeah. And I think I, I you I think you've hit actually the nail right on the head. So back to the back to the task at hand, because we could talk about that for another <laughs> two hours or, or over cocktails <laughs> easily. Yeah. Anytime. Um, tell me a little about, about your company culture, Brian, and, and what might make it unique. So um the culture itself is really we take the work seriously, but yeah. not ourselves. Yeah. And in this space, there are not a lot of people our age doing this type of work on this level, in my experience and opinion. So when it comes to culture, it's about getting the work done, Mm -hmm. but also trying to make sure that people are living human lives. Like my partner and I both came from big corporate white shoe law firm background, Mm -hmm. cranking out hundred hour weeks, really hierarchical, uh, complex bureaucracies. We didn't want any of that with the firm. Mm -hmm. So we're very flat organization. I don't have a desk. I don't have an office. Um, That's really important to me that Mm -hmm. I, for me, the legacy is if I can create a company where people can afford to provide for their families mm-hmm. and then learn a skill set where they can go on to start their own companies. Mm-hmm. So if 15 people that work for me go on and start 15 companies that they employ 15 people, I'm good. Yeah, like, that's a, a great legacy for me. Yep, I agree. It's I'm not the ego. And, and there's a big problem in our business and just yeah. people have a pissing contest about who has the most square footage, the most AUM, yeah. the best IRR. 
clearly I want to do the right thing for my investors and I want to have the incentives aligned, mm-hmm. but that's not the stuff I want on my tombstone. Do you have this conversation with your investors? Yes. Okay. So I think it, I think setting investor expectations yes, good. I'm glad. on yeah. the front end mm-hmm. is one of the most important things that yeah. you can do as a manager. Agreed. Being exceedingly transparent and, as Brene Brown would say, clear as kind. Yeah, I, that's really great to hear because, the, you know, along with unmet expectation, you know, fill in any negative adjective you can come up with, right? I think that that that's where you you get the right partners that actually understand. Yes, we're going to make we want to make you money, but are we going to do it at the cost of our souls? Yeah. Which is what, which is what's going on in billions, by the way. <laughs> you know, okay, why, yeah. well, I don't. Need it's to why watch it's so that. fascinating. Um, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> yeah, I can. I, I'm, I'm like God. I get if um, I want to kill, put a bullet between my ears if I was in that business. <laughs> but you can realize that if you if you don't have any other joy in your life, you can you and you have a scoreboard that's that easy to to see every day mm-hmm. then that can be what drives you right mm-hmm. it's not about the money necessarily um because they have a void they're trying to fill be it a spiritual void mm-hmm. or a family void and i think something has to be wrong in your world for you to spend that much time not with friends and family and that's why i got out of big law was yeah. you would talk to these partners at the end of their careers and yeah. they would say things like the value I created for the firm was directly correlated to the time I didn't spend with my friends and family. That's right. I'm like, whoa, Yeah. I don't want that legacy and I That's don't right. want my employees to think that mm-hmm. way about the business. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and, and we live in a world where you've got a few companies that pretty much own everything which is dangerous. And I'd still like to think we are an entrepreneurial society. I think we, we are in many ways, you know, but what is, what is an entrepreneur to do when some big guy comes after him and says, Hey, we want to, you know, buy you for a hundred million dollars. Take the money. (laughs) Right. You know, and put in some caveats that they're not going to destroy your company that you just built (laughs) before you do the deal. I mean, that's the smart thing to do. I think a lot of people would just sell, sell, sell and not even care, right? So that's, you know, you talk about the legacy you're looking to leave. You know, do you, do you take what you built and make sure that your people are taken care of and that they don't just buy you to rid yourself of the, you know, rid, rid society of the company because it was a competitor or whatever, right? So... What's your day-to-day look like, Brian, as a, as a leader? So uh, Naval Ravikant, who I'm a huge fan of, would say that if you respond to this question by saying every day is different, it means you have a specific set of skills. <laughs> and so for me, interesting, I have a specific set of skills, mm-hmm. which means that I have a unique skill set of, of raising capital. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, every day I wake up and I think, how can we grow our acquisitions pipeline and how can we grow our investor pipeline? Mm-hmm. Um, so I have, again, to go back to mistakes I made the first time, I've surrounded myself with really good professionals who are very task oriented and very technically mm-hmm. savvy within their certain subject matter expertise, which allows me to just think about strategy. Right. Like where's the company going? Where should we be spending time? Where do we need to allocate resources mm-hmm. and personnel? Yeah. And then how can we grow efficiently? And so I certainly do meetings and I, I do a lot of prospecting. I do a lot of things like this, but day to day, my main job is to understand which each individual in the firm quantifies as success in their minds, or mm-hmm. qualifies as success in their mind and giving them the opportunity to hit those, those yeah. metrics and those goals in their head. Cause some of them are motivated by very different things. Right. And so my job is to make sure everyone on the team is performing the way they should be, which sounds like a cliche answer, but it's just the truth. No, it, it's it's really not. I mean, I, I think it's really important that 
you know, we as leaders spend our time where our genius is and farm out the rest to people that that's their genius. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Rockefeller, I'm going to murder this quote, but Rockefeller says something along the lines of, the minute that you can afford to hire somebody to take something off your plate that you're not exceedingly good at, mm -hmm. hire them. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, well, right. And that's what I your, do. Yeah. Right. I mean, so the minute that I can afford to take something off my plate that I don't love to do, and then I'm not creating a massive amount of value for the enterprise, right. I outsource it. Right. Or I try to use technology to to get it off mm -hmm. to get it off my plate, and so that's mm -hmm. where I spend most of my time is trying to figure out because my skill set is you know talking to individuals and families about what we do. Not many people are very good at that, right? Um, so anything that detracts from that focus, I try to outsource or delegate. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I and I do the same. I mean, what what usually it ends up looking like for me is let's see, what's my hourly time worth? And does it make sense for me to be doing this? Mm -hmm. Get it off my plate. And it's been weird with COVID yeah. because um, now that I don't have as much travel and that we've leveraged technology mm -hmm. to make it much more efficient for our investors and for ourselves, I have more time than I ever had before. Mm. And so I'm not mm -hmm. struggling, but trying to figure out how to fill it sometimes. Not always, but mm -hmm. some days. Yeah. Well, I, I will say that for myself, I'm often grateful to have a little extra time <laughs> where, you know, whether it's to, you know, go outside and play with my dog or maybe sneak away and, and you know, go, go for a horseback ride. That doesn't happen very often during the day because I just can't be out of my office that many hours. But on a rare occasion, I will. And I'm always really grateful that I've done it. <laughs> Glad that I've done it. Yeah. Um, because yeah. It's, it's, good, uh, it's good therapy. Good mental therapy. So if somebody listening to this, Brian, uh, says, wow, this, this is kind of a business I'd be interested in working for, learning about, what would you recommend that they do? How should they get a hold of you? Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I'm very active on LinkedIn. So Brian C. Adams, Excelsior Capital, shoot me a note. I'm happy to chat with you about um, <laughs> anything we talked about on the show, which is pretty wide ranging. Mm -hmm. And then if you want to actually get into the nitty gritty, go to the website, excelsiorcapitalgp.com. You can check out the portfolio. We do a ton on the resources side. I think I alluded to this, but um, one of the reasons I like working with individuals and families is I can actually provide them value beyond the opportunities. So we yeah. do a lot in terms of education, content creation, professional networking, um, access to other investment mm -hmm. opportunities that are unassociated with me. So we have a lot on there that I would encourage people to check out okay. um, and just shoot me a note. Love to talk. Mm -hmm. Well, Brian Adams, founder and president of Excelsior Capital. Uh, this has been a delight and I really want to thank you for your time. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Authentically Successful. If you are a successful founder or CEO who would like to be on this program, please visit verticalelevation.com slash podcast slash apply. If you learned something from this interview and it made a difference, please share it on LinkedIn or Twitter. You can also do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend. And if you know of someone who would be a great guest, tag them on LinkedIn or Twitter to let them know about the show and include the hashtag authentically successful. I love seeing your posts and great suggestions. Lastly, we are regularly putting out new episodes and content. And to make sure you don't miss any episodes, please subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. If you want to know more, go to our website, verticalelevation.com, or follow me on LinkedIn. This is Carol Schultz. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.